Hello and welcome to the Take is Directed podcast. I'm Steve Morrison, Senior Vice President and Director of the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Judd Debermont, Director of the CSIS Africa Program. Prior to joining CSIS, he served as the National Intelligence Officer for Africa from 2015 to 2018. We've asked Judd to join us today to discuss the current Ebola crisis in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and to provide some context on the situation. Before we turn to Judd, a quick update on the current status of the Ebola outbreak in North Kivu and Ituri provinces and the ongoing response effort. The numbers right now, we've got a record as of November 24th, 412 total cases. Getting over 400 cases is a big number. It may not seem so big against 11 or 12 or 28,000 total cases in West Africa, but that's a big number. Total deaths 236 deaths. Um, recently, we saw 21 cases in the security red zone of Kulunguta. By red zone, we mean areas that are inaccessible because they're held by armed opposition groups, most notably the Allied Democratic Forces, ADF. Uh, there's been a surge of new cases recently reported in Butembo, a large city in North Kivu, over 1 million, also fraught with insecurity and suspicion. Late on the night of November 16th, there was a targeted attack close to a hotel. This was in Beni, uh, where WHO personnel were staying. None were injured, but 16 WHO workers were evacuated to Goma for psychological treatment. Seven UN peacekeepers were killed and 10 wounded in an operation against the ADF by the UN peacekeeping force on November 14th. I want to say a few other things. On a more positive note, over 35,000 people have been vaccinated, and a third of those are healthcare workers. That's a high number, high proportion. Another indication of just how high the risk is perceived to be for health workers. We have over 40 health workers have been infected, 12 dead. That's a very high number. One in 10 of the cases are health workers. We're seeing a high, no, continued high number of new cases where these new cases, new Ebola cases, have appear on no contact lists, which means that we're really operating in the dark as to the origin of cases if the contact tracing case investigation is not working the way it has we're also continuing to see high numbers of community deaths. By that, I mean high numbers of people who are dying in their homes. They don't come forward when they're, when they're uh, becoming symptomatic. They die in their homes. They can infect family members while there. The burial issues become um, uh, very complicated and problematic as well. Uh, all of that is part of a sort of broader phenomenon of continued community resistance to cooperation um, with the pr providers Uganda has mobilized to try to vaccinate its healthcare workers along the districts and the border areas. Um, they started that program just a short while ago, and almost 1,200 have been vaccinated. Another very good news story. There are clinical trials beginning on experimental therapies, four of which are being introduced. Uh, that's another encouraging sign. Today, we're going to talk about the Allied Defend Democratic Forces, ADF. We're also going to talk about the electoral process. I was hoping in this to get Judd to share with us his perspective on who are these guys. I mean, they are central to – ADF is central to the storyline. Every news story talks about how insecurity dominates the picture in this Ebola outbreak in eastern Congo and typically cites ADF – as having committed well over 20 armed attacks in and around Beni, the epicenter of Beni alone. But there's very little explanation, typically, in any of these accounts as to their origin, their history, their relationship to the communities in which they occupy, 
the different mutations they've gone through since they first entered from Uganda into DRC in, 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 in 1995. So, Judd, give us a little bit of background on how you see ADF. Who are they, and, and why are we talking about them today? Sure, Steve. I'm happy to do it. I, I think the, the starting point is that ADF is a resilient, adaptable group that has been operating uh, since its formation in 1995. And as you said, Steve, it is it has moved from Uganda to multiple different sites in the Congo. It has um, changed its sponsorship. It was initially sponsored by Khartoum and by the Mobutu regime. It has suffered leadership changes, including the arrest of Jamal Mukulu in 2015 in Tanzania. Um, it has made alliances with all sorts of different people, from Mai Mai groups to rebel groups, um, and it has been beaten badly from offensives to the point where they were down to 100 people and then has reinvigorated and renewed itself. So we're talking about a group that there's not a lot of information about who they are, but their history uh, tells you a lot about how difficult of a foe um, ADF poses towards the health uh, response. So let me go a little bit into the history. Um, the ADF was formed in 1995. It was a merger of two very different groups. On one side, NALU, uh, the National Alliance for the Liberation of Uganda, uh, which was essentially a separatist movement based out of uh, western Uganda that had had a long history that dates back into the 1980s. And then ADF, which was Islamic movement associated with the Tabliki movement in Uganda. And in 1995, with the help of Khartoum and Mobutu, they merged together. They were operating in western Uganda when the Ugandan forces eventually pushed them out uh, into Congo. They suffered a number of both Ugandan and then DRC and UN operations that, again, knocked them down to very small numbers. After a couple of failed amnesty negotiations, the NALU side of ADF NALU left and uh, went, rejoined the, the, the government or rejoined Uganda, and ADF continued to operate. Now, here's where it gets really challenging. Um, people talk a lot about its Islamist background. Um, we should have a conversation about whether how much of that is true. Um, but because ADF doesn't have a really clear leadership structure, because it rarely makes public communications, it often it offers the opportunity for other groups to claim that they're ADF. So as much as we talk about ADF proper, we also have to talk about fake ADF, people who are claiming to be ADF, or at least allowing that that uh, that claim or accusation and not contesting it because it suits their purpose. And some of the, the best scholarly work points to Mai Mai's, other rebel groups, and even the Congolese military as having posed as ADF to do operations. And this is particularly important in the 2004 to 2015 period where we saw 800 people die, 100,000, 150,000 people displaced, um, and it continues today. So it's a very challenging group to get our hands on. I think people in the, the press will often use the Islamist shorthand, and I think that that needs to be unpacked. And I think there are too many people who are professing that they really know what's going on. It's just very difficult to get your hands on it. I would recommend uh, the work out of uh, the Congo Research Group that has done probably some of the best work on ADF. And even if you read those exceptional reports, you get a sense of how much is still missing in our understanding. Some of the 
writers on ADF have referred to it as a, a borderlands phenomenon, that these are groups that exist in the interstices between broken places and lost places or remote and inaccessible places. And the other thing that strikes me in looking at their history is that they haven't always been uh, hell-bent on violent killing and abductions. That's become their signature uh, in, the last ten, in the last eight or nine years. That's been their signature is they've killed over 1,000 people and for the last four or five years they've abducted almost 700 uh, they've been able to replenish their forces from nearly nothing to somewhere between, I don't know, 1,500, 2,000. Uh, they do have this regenerative ability to operate in that environment of the being a borderlands phenomenon. The other thing I want uh, on top of that borderlands thing is that this is the same place that was overrun with a million and a half people fleeing into this zone after the um, Rwanda genocide. It's an area that's been uh, – that was home to the March 23rd group, M23, RCD. There's been a whole host of armed groups that have been bigger and badder than the ADF at different times, um, which you know, creates the context in which you, you wonder – people wonder why is it 23 years after entering DRC that we know so little about this group. Partly, it's they've, they're, they're a small fish, in relative terms, swimming in this mess that's the eastern Congo. Well, I think there's a you put a lot of good points on the board. On, on being a group in the borderlands or a frontier group, I think that's really critical to understanding how they remain active. Uh, we know that they profit from timber trade, mineral trades, that cross-border trade. But we've been talking about it as a Ugandan group, and really it has immersed itself into Congolese society, intermarried, um, worked with community leaders, made deals with them. And so it has been able to root itself in the eastern Congo, northern Kivu um, societies, and I think that's part of its resilience. Why is this small fish continuing to swim in these waters? Um, Well, I think there's just a extraordinary amount of, of different Mai Mai groups and militia groups that operate and continue to operate. So uh, they're one of many fish. Um, but I think what's different from them than, say, the M23 is uh, with the case of the M23, um, there has been questions about how much it had a local uh, resonance, and particularly because the Rwandan sponsorship was so critical to M23. When the UN and the government of uh, the Congo turned on M23 and the Rwandans pulled their support out, that group got weakened very quickly and, and largely were defeated. Although, interesting, most of the literature says that many of some M23 joined ADF or worked or, or fought alongside it or at least uh, tamed the claim credit for being a fake ADF. So, even when defeated in eastern Congo, you never really go away. Let me get back to this point. I mean, for for year, for the first 15 years that they were inside DRC, they weren't into mass killing and mass abductions. They were, they were striking bargains with uh, some marginalized ethnic entities. They were intermarrying. They were becoming farmers. They were, uh, they were integrating themselves. They had some local roots. And then... As they came under pressure from the FARDC, the Congolese military, and from the UN peacekeepers, that's when it seemed to be that they switched on to this mode. And they've come under at least three cycles of major 
campaigns directed against them since 2010, one of which, as you point out, the Socola Socola Mm -hmm. one in 2013, almost eliminated them entirely. Um, But it didn't. They were able to spring back uh, fairly rapidly. They were uh, subjected to two other campaigns. The most recent one started earlier this year, right, in January, after they killed a bunch of peacekeepers last December. Um, there was a major campaign, but it stalled out. So, why is it that, why is it that the FARDC and Manusco are unable to vanquish these guys? They come close, right, 2013, yeah. but they fail. And apparently, in the campaign this year, they only they only stuck stuck to the fight for about 60 days, and then they they gave up. Yeah, it's it's hard to to really wrap your hand around why they don't fight to completion, I think because in, in many of these cases they get down to 100 ADF fighters and, and perhaps uh, think that they've defeated the group or that it's going to submit. Um, what I think is really interesting about all of the key Ugandan and then the UNDRC operations against against ADF is the way that it strikes out its civilians in retribution for that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's most likely what is happening is that they are using it to silence collaborators and communities that I think have betrayed them. And so that probably gives them just a little bit of refuge in these moments uh, between the fighting to, to stay alive. And, and certainly when the, the UN or the FARDC stops their attacks, that's when the ADF is really rebuilding, recruiting, and you know, getting back that life support so that it can is to fight another fight. I mean, it poses big questions for us, Steve, as we think about what to do about the Ebola response, because one of the things that has to be done is to clear ADF. Um, but the history shows that when you do clear ADF, they react very strongly. Um, the attack in December of 2017 uh, was one of the most violent attacks on UN peacekeepers since the really since Black Hawk Down, actually, when 17 uh, peacekeepers were killed. And we've seen high numbers of UN peacekeepers being killed by ADF just in the last two months. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have a a real challenge here, which is they need to be pacified. We need to find a way to get ADF from stopping to attack health workers so that we can have access. At the same time, um, the threat of reprisal killings, once that happens, is high given its history. But what choice, let's take the the role of the UN peacekeeping, right? They're seeing their own people get selected out, targeted, and murdered by these guys in significant numbers. Mm -hmm. You would think under any other circumstance that this would trigger a very strong response, a strong and sustained response. We haven't seen that. On the FADRDC, they have tried and failed repeatedly their own credibility on the ground and, and legitimacy is not very good. And we're getting into an electoral cycle right now. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much stomach in Kinshasa for launching a big campaign in the middle of the current environment. No, absolutely not. So we're in a b- little bit of a standoff where the ADF has the advantage. Yeah, I think that's right. Plus, when we look at insurgencies, all they have to do is not lose, right? The ADF can pick and choose when it does these attacks. Um, and it can make itself look 10 feet tall when it needs to be. And then it can disappear back into the bush, into the communities uh, when under threat. Um, and you're right. There is this challenge with the government 
doesn't want to engage in this ahead of the election. Um, it's truthfully has rarely been in the fight consistently to get at some of these Mai Mai and militia groups um, unless there's a lot of concentrated international pressure. Uh, let me give you an example by a group that we're not talking about, which is the FDLR, which is the militia group that are associated with the, the Rwandan genocide. So these are Hutus from Rwanda or Congolese Hutu. And it has been, they were supposed to be the next target after the M23 was defeated in 2013. And the UN, but particularly the FARDC, uh, the, the Congolese government, has never really wanted to push out FDLR fully. And they've, in the same way that ADF, has been you know moved into smaller and smaller groups. Same problem has happened with FDLR, but they've never been vanquished. I think it does say a lot about this operating environment, how challenging it is, but it also is revelatory about the, the FDRC, the DRC's government willingness to really spend capital and clear these groups. And many people point to the fact there's probably some collusion between some of the soldiers and these rebel groups, which actually can be very problematic. In fact, um, in that 2004 and five and six period, uh, the commander of the DRC mission um, was, there's lots of allegations that he was in collaboration or that he was working with different groups to create greater instability. So difficult environment, resilient groups, and a half-hearted government approach to deal with it. I think that's why we continue to be in this problem set. So the, on the Ebola uh, response. Of course, now we're over 400 cases. The contract tracing is, is, is not going well. The safe burials, case investigation, uh, the most fundamental parts of the response are not going well. And this is all tied to the insecurity that's been caused by these repeated attacks in and around Beni, up in Wicha, um, and, 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 uh, and elsewhere that have been so disruptive um, now, up to up to this point, uh, we have seen no hesitation by the ADF to launch these attacks, well over 20 attacks. Um, they seem to have been somewhat careful not to not to attack health workers, though. And uh, they, of course, control populations and, and territory themselves where the virus is now present. Yeah. So say a bit about what that may mean. I mean, if... They cross the threshold and start killing and abducting healthcare workers. The entire operation, of which there are over 600 people on the ground, uh, conducting vaccinations, uh, doing all the contact tracing, isolation and treatment, um, safe burials. If that collapses, we're in a free-for-all uh, 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 epidemic. Yeah, absolutely. And this is the point that I think is so important about as we think about the ADF. There are observers who who rests on past precedent that ADF hasn't targeted humanitarian workers and they focus mainly on government, UN, and communities. And I've watched too many militia groups and terrorist groups change their patterns and their targets in ways that surprise us um, that I don't think that that's the right approach. We should be mindful that ADF could decide ultimately to hit a humanitarian worker um, because of the international tension it has, because exactly as you said, Steve, it would scatter everyone uh, from the region. And this is what Peter Salama told us when we had our public event a couple weeks ago. This is the game changer uh, for the international response is that a health worker is attacked. We've seen one health worker attacked. He was um, mili DRC military. Um, so he wasn't really the target of the attack. But I think it's 
a very real possibility, and groups transform um, their modus operandi and their target sets as conditions change. And this is a change in the condition with such a large presence of international health workers and the Ebola virus and communities that are fearful of what um, people, uh, health workers from the outside coming in means. And uh, I think that we should be really prepared for it and think of a way through it. That doesn't mean that we, we give up or we're conservative about it, but we do need to factor that into our calculations. Before we move on to the elections, just one other question around the allegation of jihadist linkages. I mean, the, the, the report by the Congo Research Group out of NYU, this most recent one published in November, one of the concluding points they make is that they do have pretenses to forming broader alliances with, with other radical Islamist um, entities. This may be just aspirational uh, but certainly they seem to be identifying with, openly identifying with East African jihadi interests. It's a little hard to know exactly what to make of that. They also cite this case of a Kenyan financier, ISIS financier, um, Zain, Walid Ahmed Zain, who was uh, charged, um, has been has been targeted in our own government's designations of uh, of actors who are supporting terrorist operations who it's, it's, it's suspected or alleged was involved in f- providing some form of financing to the ADF. Um, I realize these are all murky. Mm-hmm. Uh, these, are, these are somewhere in the realm of allegations. Um, but what can you tell us? Yeah, I think the Congo Research Group's piece is really careful and balanced, which is what we really need on this discussion. Uh, as I said earlier, the ADF was uh, started as a Islamic movement, a tabliki movement in Uganda, and then has long been, there's long been accusations that it has been associated with Shabab and other extremist groups. There was a lot of concern that regional groups, regional governments were playing up those linkages uh, for their own political purposes. And so it, it has been really difficult to figure out who the ADF really is in terms of their uh, the networks in which they operate on and their affiliations. Um, in Starting in 2006 and 2007, uh, on Telegram and on WhatsApp and other platforms, encrypted platforms, they started talking about themselves as, or this. there was an element calling themselves the MTM, the City of Monotheism and Monotheists, also known as the City of Monotheism and Holy Warriors. Um, and people weren't really able to make sense of what this is. And the Congo Research Group's analysis um, looked at this. Um, at least one defector pointed out that the current leader of ADF, Musa Baluka's wife, was on this video. The former leader's son, Moses, was on one of these videos. Um, and these videos were really reaching out to the broader East African community, not just using uh, Ugandan local languages, but Kiswahili, Arabic, French, really positioning themselves as part of this greater network. And then, of course, the arrest of the ISIS facilitator. So I think there's a lot of questions to be answered, asked and answered. Um, I think it's really important to think about why groups like this with may try to position themselves uh, in the global jihadi universe domain, probably for greater attention, maybe for resources or the financial resources, uh, maybe for some strategic guidance. Uh, the, the impetus is almost certainly local, but there's clearly some signaling going on 
and how much this small group in a in Eastern Congo is going to actually benefit uh, from the affiliation or benefit from any sort of goods, services, um, strategy from a uh, ISIS that is is you know is weakened in the core in in Syria and Iraq. I think are open questions, but uh, we should take it seriously and try to figure and try over the next weeks, months to try to understand what are the actual implications. So get the headline out of the way in terms of what the videos mean or don't mean and think about more concretely, could this strengthen ADF or not? Could it be, could it make it less interesting as a partner for local communities or not? I think those are the big questions that we have to think about as we go forward. You know, in the past, the UN expert group on Congo has done some really very important investigative work and published the findings on different groups, including ADF. And one of the th- things that they unearthed that I found surprising was that the network of, of Ugandan diaspora, Muslim diaspora, in in living in the UK, mm. were thought to be providing financial support to ADF. But it did make me think, well, maybe in this instance, the UN should step forward and reactivate or refocus these expert groups, its expert group on Congo. Yeah, I think that's a great suggestion. I mean, Jamal Makulu, the former leader, had a um, had a UK passport for a while and was traveling to London. Um, but I think the expert groups tend to be one of the richest sources of information for us to think through these issues. And so I, I, I second that. I think it's a great initiative, great idea. Okay, let's move on to elections. Um, scheduled for December 23rd. Theoretically. Theoretically. And these are national these are provincial. These are local. Um, they're coming on the heels of a two-year lapse since the end of President Joseph Kabila's second five-year term at the end of 2016. Some of our listeners may not realize that Joseph Kabila had had followed in his father's footsteps when his father was assassinated in 2001. His father had overthrown Mobutu and come into power. His father had lived in this borderlands area mm-hmm. for most of his entire life. He had come there with Che Guevara. Right. Although Che Guevara said that he didn't think he would amount to much. Yeah. <laughs> so so um, Kabila came out of this – Kabila's father came out of this in, same environment as a sort of borderlands guy living, living a cr- semi-criminal life um, over a couple of decades and then comes storming into power. His son then succeeds him. Uh, so we now have these elections coming forward after a long and violent – and heavily contested uh, two-year period um, of challenges to the Constitution. If successful, these could be the DRC's first peaceful and democratic transition of power since independence, 1960. We have Kabila's hand-picked successor, Emmanuel Ramazani Shadari, against a splintered opposition. And within that opposition, uh, Tishakedi's son, Felix Tishakedi, has emerged as the most... um, attractive for our listeners. Tisha Katie was the, for decades, the popular opposition guy who just could never quite seal the deal. He passed away last year, as I recall, 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, the question of what happens, how does this affect the response and the evolution of the epidemic in, of Ebola in the East is a big question. Tisha Katie has put a big focus on the East, which is quite interesting. So tell us a bit about how this election is shaping up in your view and how it might impact the 
uh, or shape behavior vis-a-vis the Ebola outbreak. Sure. Well, let, let me footstomp how important this election is and Kabila's decision to step down. It took, as you said, two years to convince him to do it. Um, I think that it is a testament to the region that pressured him that this was not acceptable, particularly the Angolan president, new Angolan president, uh, Jao Lorenzo. And Kabila finally agreed to step down, and he appointed his former interior minister, Shadari, who, by the way, is under EU sanctions uh, for human rights abuses. Um, One of the reasons why we've had delays for two years um, is because they happen to have a electoral commission that is looking for the perfect. In fact, the head of the electoral commission, the Seni Commissioner Naga, uh, seems to use technocratic excuses to delay the elections. And the government of Congo has, for the last couple of years, said, well, don't we need to have a good election rather than a bad election? And that has been the excuse to hold uh, to hold on to power. And the way that the Congolese talk about it, they call it, they call it glissement, which is delay, uh, with sliding. And the, the idea was instead of amending the Constitution like many of the, the other leaders in the region, that Kabila would just push the elections by. He's incredibly unpopular. The anecdotes are that when there's a football game, a soccer game, in somewhere in Congo, the crowd will result will ultimately start chanting Kabila must go. I mean, he has, you know, his numbers were so low and so unpopular, and this is why it is not just about a democracy issue, but a stability issue that he move on. So now here we are in uh, November 2018. Kabila has stepped down, or he pledges he's going to step down. There's still a lot of skepticism, uh, as you can understand after two years. Uh, he's appointed a human rights abuser as his party's candidate, and the opposition is deeply fragmented and fractured. Uh, just a couple weeks ago, the opposition in, was in Geneva uh, under the auspices of the Kofi Annan uh, Conference Foundation, and they did a, a two-stage voting process to unite under one candidate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they decided to unite under a opposition leader who has one seat in parliament, his, his name is uh, Martin Fayulu, and I think I was surprised. Many of us surprised that they actually got this far and, and had one candidate. And of course, 24 hours later, um, they had all broken up and disagree- and agreed that they weren't going to support Morton Fayulu. And so now we have two separate opposition camps going uh, competing against Shadari. Um, I'm going kind of giving you a longer story so we can get to how complicated this election is. Uh, but you have Chitsakiti and Vital Kamere on one side, and then you have Fayulu, who is supported by two candidates who probably would have won the election if they weren't barred, and that is the former governor of Katanga, Moise Katumbi, one of the richest people in Congo, and uh, former Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba, who was under ICC indictment, was acquitted, um, but again, couldn't run. So you've got these two opposition camps running against uh, Shadari. And this is not a two-round system. This is a plurality only. Mm-hmm. Polling actually shows that Shadari, like Kabila, is fairly unpopular at about 9%. But the question is, one, can the opposition get more, either side, get more votes than Shadari or not? And then there's the actual question of the electoral preparation and the actual fairness of this process. Mm-hmm. I've alluded to the fact that they've already disbarred two of the candidates. They have been insistent on... Um, importing electronic voting machines from South Korea, which are 
problematic. They were, I think they were going to be used in South America, and they decided that they weren't credible, but the government is insisting they're going to use it. Um, and then Afghan, of course, all of this is around the backdrop of the Ebola outbreak. Mm-hmm. So the most important election that Congo is going to have, I think certainly since uh, Kabila's election in 2006, at the same time uh, where we have a major outbreak of Ebola and ADF in the Kivus. And I think I, I do think Peter Salama's comment about this being the perfect storm is, is appropriate. Um, and as I've talked to people, there's a, a a fairly strong sentiment that these elections could be pushed at the minimum of two weeks mm-hmm. um, because of the electoral challenges, the technocratic challenges. By the way, having an election in December in Central Africa is not the best idea because it's the rainy season, so much more difficult to move, uh, move logistically move anything. In fact, usually the UN has to send in its helicopters to move ballot boxes. So it may be delayed for a couple weeks, maybe longer. If it's longer, I think you will see the population um, feel that their worst fears were, were, were well-grounded, that this is Glissement, and that Kabila doesn't have any intention of, of running. So that's, that's the additional layer to the uh, Ebola health response. On the face of it, it looks like Tisha Kedi would get a pretty commanding turnout in his favor if there was even a roughed-out election. You know, if Kabila's only polling at 9% and Tisha Kedi's at 36, the highest yeah. 30s, that's a lot of supposition that the process could ha- handle in that way. I also wanted to ask you: uh, Is it fair to assume that if there were, if it were possible to hold an election in the in the east, in the in North Kivu and Ituri, that Tisha Kedi would have a very commanding lead there, or not? Well, on the first point, even assuming as a free and fair election. Um, Chisakidi's numbers, 36, I'd like to see. I haven't seen what, how they break down regionally. I hear it's, it's fairly good nationwide, but Chisakidi's support is largely uh, in the Kasais, where his father is from. Now, he's fortunate because with his alliance with Vital Kamare, who's from the Kivus, that actually should help him. So that will be perhaps uh, a plus side on the Kivus. On the opposition, while Martin Fayulu is, again, has one seat, he's actually seen as... Um, as someone who stands up and is not viable um, and has you know, fought for important issues uh, over the years. Uh, but the backing of Pem- Bemba and of Katumbi is important. That's money and that's ground game. So the MLC, Bemba's party, is, has been fairly popular and fairly coherent, even with having a leader in The Hague for as long as they have. And the Katumbi uh, has, is the money um, and owns the most popular uh, football team. Uh, in in Congo and will do well in the Katangas. So I think that it's on on the basis of polling, Chitsakedi looks pretty good. I'm hoping we'll see another poll uh, in the couple, next couple of weeks so that we can have a little more clarity. But the opposition, the other faction, the other bloc also has a lot of strengths to its uh, credit. And then you know, obviously, the elephant in the room is that the election is not going to be free and fair. It does not look like it has all of the. I mean, the pre-election environment tells you it's not going to be free and fair. But if the ballot boxes or, you know, if there's any rigging, you know, what will what will that mean for Shadari? So there's any number of scenarios possible. One could be that the elections simply don't happen, but that lack of happening fosters more violence and instability and Absolutely. and that makes the working environment that much worse in in the Kivus and elsewhere, which is already pretty fraught with violence. 
Um, it seemed to me also that the elections are a huge distraction for the leadership in Kinshasa, that as we were talking earlier, there's no appetite in Kinshasa for internationalizing the security situation in the East, for saying we've got to take out ADF today and let's figure this out and, and, and we've got to do something new and different. Seems to be zero appetite for that. Yeah, I think that's right. And um, it's also a, a preoccupation, I won't use distraction, but it's a preoccupation of the international community. I mean, these elections are important for the U.S. State Department, the U.S. government, for the Europeans. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think they're also stretched, right, responding to the Ebola crisis and trying to keep these elections, which have been sort of, as we've said, on delay for two years now. You know, there's a lot of energy there. So um, our practitioners and diplomats and policymakers have got two really important issues to deal with at the same time. And probably if they had just one, it would be uh, overwhelming. We have an ambassador there now in place, Ambassador Hammer. We do. We have Ambassador Well named. Yes. And uh, he's got incredible credentials. So I think we were really fortunate to have someone with uh, his gravitas, his experience uh, at post. And now we have a new um, Great Lakes envoy named just a short while ago. That's correct. Peter Pham, who does not require Senate confirmation. No, uh, my understanding is he's – work right away. Yeah, he's, he's already on the job. I think he's going to a um, – you know, a an event in Europe to talk to other donors. So he's on the, he's already on the hustlings, and on the international community's relationship to the, to the electoral preparations. How is that shaping up? In the past, the UN shouldered an enormous burden for very expensive elections, and then I think walked away saying never again. Um, what's the current? state of play in terms of the role that the major powers, along with the regional state neighbors, as long as uh, along with organizations like the AU or the EU are playing vis-a-vis these elections? Well, in terms of the UN and uh, the West, um, whether it's out of frustration over the last election cycles, uh, that's probably part of it. But the Congolese government has given them the Heisman and told them uh, they don't need their help. So the role of, and we just uh, were talking um, to IRI and NDI, I mean, they're going to have a very limited footprint, if, mm-hmm. if anything. Um, the UN, which historically um, has been the one to move logistically, to move the ballot boxes, they're not going to be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be largely, we understand, it's going to be SADC, the South African um, regional grouping that will deal with that. Um, I presume the AU will have observers. Um, the UN, SRSG has talked about uh, the elections. But again, I think they're going to be Um, more on the sidelines. And here's what the challenge is. The region, as I said earlier, put so much capital into getting to Kabila to step down. I think it's it's unlikely that they're going to put that same kind of energy on the second second part of it. I mean, they've spent a lot of their capital on getting to step down. The election is going to happen, come as may, and then they're going to move on. So I don't think you're going to get, unless a crisis explodes, you're going to see much regional pushing in the next month for cleaner elections. Can I share just one point, yes, yes, Steve, please, with you that I please. that I love? And um, I think it's really interesting. In 1965, after Mobutu took power, the Belgian foreign minister said uh, the coup was probably uh, the best thing that could happen to the Congo. Uh, it's not clear yet if it was a good thing. 
And I think in some respects, that's where we are today. Uh, Kabila stepping down is the best thing that could happen to Congo. We're just not sure if it's a good thing or it's yet to be seen. Thank you. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground. Thank you, Judge, for all of that. My pleasure. We will be coming back together regularly to revisit this issue, which is of the Ebola outbreak in eastern Congo, which is a fast-moving story, along with the elections um, and the deteriorating security situation. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Take As Directed, featuring Judd Devermont, director of the CSIS Africa program. We invite you to subscribe to Take As Directed so that you never miss our latest episode. For more information on our upcoming events and recent publications, visit CSIS.org Global Health Policy Center program page. If you'd like to hear more from Judd in our Africa program, please subscribe to Into Africa, CSIS's new original podcast series. Thanks. Thanks.